Okay, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. That's where we'll be this morning. We have a huge passage of Scripture to, to cover, and as I told the first service, if you've been coming to my Sunday school class and or if you're a regular college student, you know that if I have a huge chunk of Scripture, what tends to happen is that instead of the sermons being longer, they end up being shorter because I go into like a super high-efficiency mode. Um, and, and sure enough, first thing I was told after the first service was, you can slow down. It's okay. You have time. So hopefully uh, I'll do better. But Second Corinthians chapter 9, let's begin reading in verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter. <clears throat> for it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians. Namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that would go on ahead that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ, and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they, also by, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Just to get back to Second Corinthians, since it's been a couple of weeks, let's uh, have a quick reminder where we are in the book. A couple of weeks ago, Jody taught us that the Apostle Paul was taking up a collection among the Gentile churches for the poor afflicted saints in Jerusalem. This is a very important gift. We read about it in other letters of Paul's. He references it in his first letter to the Corinthians, where he commands them to begin taking up an offering every week on the first day of the week during Lord's Day worship for this work. We read about it in Galatians. We read about it in Romans. He's very earnest in his desire for the Gentile churches to be a blessing to the church at Jerusalem. And there is a great need for it. First, the church at Jerusalem was very afflicted and oppressed. 
the need there was far greater than it was in many other churches, most of the Gentile churches. Second, the Apostle Paul was actually explicitly commanded to keep in mind the poor saints in Jerusalem as he went about planting churches. And so this was a a command for the Apostle Paul and a charge that he took on himself as he went out. And we read about that in Galatians. Third, we find in the book of Acts that many of the saints in Jerusalem, the saints, not just those who opposed the church, were suspicious of the Gentile believers, the Gentile churches, and of the Apostle Paul and his mission. And so in Acts chapter 21, we read about the Apostle Paul comes back to Jerusalem bearing the gift, and he comes and is on the one hand received with joy, and then on the other hand he's taken aside by the leaders and said, listen, some of the saints are suspicious about you, and they say that you're throwing down you know, the law of Moses, and we want you to take a vow, shave your head, and, and demonstrate that you submit to the law of Moses. So he does it. So there's some degree of suspicion about Paul and, and his, his ministry to Gentile believers, even at the church in Jerusalem. And we read in, in, at the end of chapter 9 that the, the, this ministry, this collection, will be proof of the Gentile church's obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and that it will bind their hearts together. It will produce a, a, a harmony and unity among the churches. So those are the three things that, that, that motivate him to take up this collection. And in fact, that's what all of chapter 8 was about. In chapter 8, we learned that the church at Corinth had been saving up for this gift for a full year. That brings us to chapter 9, which we're studying this morning, where the Apostle Paul begins by saying that it's superfluous for him to write about this collection. Superfluous. But he has just been all of chapter 8 doing it, and we're going to study it this morning in all of chapter 9, where he's talking about generous giving. It's a chapter wholly devoted to exhorting this church to give generously and cheerfully to the collection. So what's that about? Was the Apostle Paul lying or being uh, flattering when he said it was superfluous for him to write about it? Is that what you think when you read it? What do you think my answer is? No. No, he's not lying. He's not being flattering. There are some very real issues here, and we'll we'll do well to understand them. Uh, Now, here's the issue. The Apostle Paul has already been in Corinth and he's exhorted them to take up a collection for the needs of the saints. And they took up that task with readiness, he says. They were excited about it. They were zealous to meet the needs of the church in Jerusalem. And they were so excited, they were so zealous that after he left, he began boasting of their readiness, of their zeal to contribute to the poor, to other churches. So he's going into other churches and he's talking about the church at Corinth, and how ready they are, how excited they are to be giving. And he's using that to encourage them to be excited, and it works. The zeal of the church at Corinth stirs up the zeal of these other churches, the Macedonian churches. So that's the starting point, but then something happened. Bad news came from Corinth. And Paul ended up having to write the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians, a call to repentance, a rebuke of the church. 
We know from that letter that the Corinthian church's heart had gone astray. They'd given themselves over to central things. They had forsaken the Apostle Paul, and they had gone after super apostles, other apostles. So chances are that their mindfulness of the poor in Jerusalem and their contributions to the collection that the Apostle Paul had organized had somehow fallen to the wayside. Certainly his confidence would have been shaken. That makes sense to us, right? Why is that? Well, if, if you were to ask our elders, if you were to go to one of our elders and say, what are a few of the best and most reliable indications that someone's about ready to leave our church? One of the first answers I think they would give you is, well, they stopped giving. They stopped tithing regularly. And that makes sense to us. I think that's probably true of any church. It makes sense. It should make sense to us for a very simple reason. It's what Jesus said in Matthew six twenty one: where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? If somebody's not on board with the church, if somebody's not on board, one of the first things that's going to happen is they're going to stop giving their money to the church's mission if they're not on board with the mission of the church. Money is an incredible diagnostic tool. How you use it, how you spend it, what you do and do not do with it demonstrates where your heart is. That's why Jesus talks about money more in the Gospels than he talks about anything else. Do you realize that? Jesus talks about money more than he talks about anything else. Now, why is that? Is Jesus obsessed with money? Is he? No. Jesus is intent on getting to our hearts. And money is the quickest and surest road to our hearts for many and most of us. There's no more sure tell-all indicator of where your heart is, of who you are and what you're about, than your pocketbook. It says everything that we need to know, everything that you need to know, how you spend your money. So, so then, if that's the case, what happens when your heart goes astray, like the church at Corinth? Your money, your resources, will follow your heart. The church at Corinth's hearts went astray, and it's very likely that their pocketbooks followed. But now, Titus has come back to Paul bearing a good report, so he has reason for his confidence in the church at Corinth to be restored. He shouldn't need to be concerned about the collection because he knows, one, their former readiness, and he knows that they're being restored to him. So in that sense, it really is superfluous for him to write about it. But at the same time, it's still appropriate, appropriate for him to take every precaution to ensure that they finish what they started. There was a shakeup in the middle. Now their hearts have returned and they're repenting. And so it does make sense that they'll return to this work if they ever left it. But you can see why it's necessary to urge them to remember it and to return to it with the same diligence with which they began. After all, Paul's reputation and their reputation is on the line. Right? That's what he says. He says, I've made a great boast about you to the churches of Macedonia. I'm coming probably with some Macedonian believers with me. And if it's not ready, they'll be scandalized and I'll be humiliated and so will you. <clears throat> they will be humiliated if they're unprepared. And that's the issue. That's what he says. That's the issue that opens chapter 9 and leads us into 
the part of the chapter that we're really going to be focusing on this morning, which is verses 6 to 15. Now, like a good pastor, the Apostle Paul is not merely concerned with this church's external obedience. He's not just concerned with getting their money. He's not a utilitarian. That's not what he's about. He wants more. Like Jesus, he's concerned with their hearts. It might do the church of Jerusalem good to get money from Corinth, but it won't profit the Corinthians spiritually if they don't give it in the right way. And so he takes great care in how he goes about doing that. There are two ways to give in this passage. The first is willingly, uh, happily, cheerfully, generously. In other words, to give from love, to to give from an internal compulsion. The second is to give sparingly, to give begrudgingly, not from love, but from external constraint. And the church at Corinth needs to not only be ready to give, but ready to give cheerfully and generously from love. Like a good pastor and like a good father, he understands that there's a time for making demands and there's a time for wooing. This is a time for wooing. This church is in the process of recovering. They're in the process of repenting. They've just been rebuked and disciplined. And here he is needing to talk to them about money, about a very sensitive subject. This is also a time for wooing because there's a serious danger that the Corinthian church could be pressed into hypocrisy at this point. And all that would do is produce anger and bitterness and resentment in their lives. It would strain their relationship with the Apostle Paul, which is being restored. It would bring no honor or pleasure to God, and consequently it would produce bad fruit. Their hearts need to be warmed to the goodness of Christian generosity. So the Apostle Paul addresses this issue in this passage from four different angles that I can see, and we're going to look at each of them. The first one is that he appeals to them from the character of God. He appeals to them from the character of God. Second, he appeals to them from the way that God works in the world, from principles God has established and promises God has made. Third, he makes an appeal to them based on what God delights in, on what God loves and what God is pleased with. And fourth, he makes an appeal to their desire to see and to know and to feel the glory and power and provision of God. So those are the four things we're going to look at. And first, we're going to look at how God is described in this passage. God is described here as a powerful and sufficient and generous God, a gracious God. Everything about this passage declares the richness of God's blessing and his power to deliver and his ability to, to deliver on his promises. God is the great giver, the great supplier, and he is overflowing with blessing. Verse 8 says that God is able to make all grace abound to you. He is able to make all grace abound to you. And the point of that is so that you will have all sufficiency in all things at all times, so that you may abound in every good work. God is powerful. He is able to make all grace abound to you. He is perfectly capable of it. His arm's not too short. He is not somehow hindered 
in his ability to make grace abound to you. It's easy for him to do. And he does. God gives us everything we have and everything we need. In verses 10 and 11, we see God supplying and multiplying our seed for sowing and increasing our harvest. It says it enriching us in every way or in everything. God is overflowing with gifts and blessings to his children. He's not needy. He's not grasping. He is all sufficient and overflowing with grace and mercy and blessing. He's generous. Now, why is it important to see God this way? To see him as, as, as a generous and happy father. Why is that important? One, because it's just true. And two, because we will always conform ourselves to who we think God is. We will always be like, we'll always become what we worship. If God is not able to care for us, if God is not interested in caring for us, we'll be afraid to trust his promises. If our God is small and stingy, we'll be tight and stingy and cranky. If we see God as a miser, we'll be misers. If we see God as a needy taker instead of a generous giver, that's what we'll be. If we see him as a selfish father, we will be selfish fathers. But if we see God as the generous and happy father he is, if we see him overflowing out of the abundance of his love with gifts and graces to his children, if we see him freely lavishing his grace upon them, we'll be a generous people. How we spend our money is directly connected to our understanding of of who God is and what God has done. It's directly connected to our understanding of the gospel. If we think we're fundamentally sufficient in and of ourselves, if we look at what we have and say, my own hand has done this, we'll be proud. We won't have compassion for the needy. We won't have compassion on the poor. We'll say, I did this myself. I worked hard. I put my sweat in. I earned it. It's my right. Go get your own. If our hearts say that, that we, would only, we would be happy if God, if God would only leave us alone, if he would stop being so demanding of us, if he would stop demanding holiness, we'd be happy if God wasn't always trying to like, take, his, take our glory for himself, we'll never be a generous and happy people. All of God's commands will be a burden to us. God will be that guy in the sky commanding and demanding misery from us, demanding that we surrender the few things in life that are actually like worth having, capable of making us happy. But when we see God in ourselves rightly, everything changes. The Bible teaches us that we're the needy ones, not God. The Bible teaches us that we're desperately needy, dependent sinners who deserve nothing except for God's wrath. Everything in heaven on earth is his. It's not ours. Everything that we have is a gift that destroys our sense of entitlement. More than that, if we belong to God, if we've been adopted into his family, we're in the hands of a merciful and generous father 
who, despite our rebellion against him, has chosen to do us good. When we see and realize that, we'll be free to be generous with others as God is abounding with grace and mercy and kindness to us in Christ. God's demands of holiness are not the self-centered demands of a curmudgeon. They're the stern and loving calls of our Father to safety, peace, and happiness. And when we see them that way, we'll want to be holy. We'll want to be like him. The second thing we need to consider this morning is God's ways. God has established a very simple principle, and he's woven it into the fabric of creation. It's very simple. It's very obvious. It's all over scripture. It's all over nature. It's the way that God normally works, and it should inform everything we do. The application is unlimited, and it's this. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. In nature, the principle is obvious. If you put a mustard seed into the ground, you're going to get a mustard tree. And that mustard tree is going to bear fruit that produces <laughs> it's going to produce mustard fruit. I don't <laughs> that was Jody thought that was funny. <laughs> it's going to produce fruit that produces more mustard seeds that if you sow them will produce more mustard trees. If you plant tomato seeds in your garden, you'll hopefully get a tomato plant that will hopefully hopefully that will produce tomatoes as opposed to peppers. In Scripture, this principle is applied to everything, from judgment, hell, and eternal life, to how we deal with our internal desires and temptations. Remember, we're called to sow to the, to the Spirit and not to sow to the flesh. Because if we sow to the Spirit, from the Spirit we'll reap eternal life, but if we sow to the flesh, from the flesh we'll reap corruption. And it's applied to, to money and possessions. Here it's being applied to how we handle God's blessings. And the specific application is money. According to this passage, your financial resources, just like all of God's many gifts and graces, are like seeds that God has given you to be sown. And he expects a return on them. He expects a harvest. He has established a principle and he has promised his blessing upon it. You can hoard the seeds to yourself. You can hoard your money and your possessions to yourself. You can embrace the principle that a prudent investor avoids risk and thereby avoids loss, and you can sow sparingly. Or you can embrace the principle that God has given us. Bountiful sowers, generous people reap bountiful harvests. Sowing seed is a dangerous business. It requires a kind of death on your part. If you're a farmer, you plant and you sow in hope that the seed that you put out there to rot and die in the ground will bear fruit. Any number of things can happen. Seed can be eaten, eaten up by birds of the air. It can fall on fallow ground, on stony ground. It can take shallow root and get washed away or burn up. Drought and flood happen. Early and late frosts happen. Great care has to be taken in the sowing of seed, and we take great care. 
But in the end, God is the giver of the growth. Every seed that we scatter is a depletion of our storehouses, whether it's our money or our time or our effort or our energy. It's something less that we have readily available to us. Whether it's your reputation even. And God's call is this. Take what you need and take only what you need. Take what you can carry and sow the rest. Invest it. Not like the man from the parable to fill up bigger barns and bigger storehouses. But invest it in the kingdom. And God's promise is this. Watch me bless it. I will not be stingy. You will have everything you need for yourself and enough left over to be even more generous. Test me in this. I am no man's debtor. That's the promise and the hope of this passage. Now, the blessing may not look like we hoped or expected. This is not prosperity gospel. God doesn't bless you so you can roll around, you know, in, in, in your, you know, car with your, you know, I don't know, what's the hot car today, Mike? You know, in your Hummer and, you know, flashing your bling, right? <laughs> Pretending like you're God's gift to the earth. If God blesses you financially, it's so that you may be a blessing to others. That's it. That's what it says in verse 11. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality. The ESV says, or translates that passage this way, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. The point of enrichment, the point of blessing, is generosity. The point of God blessing you is so that you will then be a blessing to others. And you have to figure out what that means and looks like for yourself. You have to figure out what you need and what you don't need and where and how to turn his blessing into good for the sake of the gospel. He has given you that freedom. But you better not be stingy with what he's given you. Or you'll find yourself like the man who buried his talent in the ground. God expects and he demands a return. How are you using his gifts for good? How are you using your money to bear a harvest of righteousness? Where are you sowing it? Do you believe the promise? The third thing to consider from this passage is what God takes delight in, what God loves. Verse 7 tells us that the reason we're not to give reluctantly is because God loves a cheerful giver. Now, there are two ways to respond to that reality. The first is to say, oh, come on. First, God's demanding my money, and now he's demanding, like, my emotions. He's demanding that I be happy about it. How can he do that? How can God command my emotions? That's not even fair. I can't control my emotions. Isn't it enough that I simply perform my duty? And of course, Scripture, God in Scripture is always commanding the emotions. He's always commanding you to be happy. He's always commanding you to feel certain ways about certain things. All over the place. Rejoice! Rejoice and be glad. 
Again, I say rejoice. The commands are all over the place. Weep and mourn. That's why I'm a Calvinist. I can't command my emotions. God has to change me. My heart's wrong. My heart's not right. I'm not going to give cheerfully unless God does a work in me and changes my heart. And neither will you. Of course, God has the right to command your emotions and it's right for him to do so. Think about your kids. If I tell my son, if I tell Peter to share a toy with Lucy and he does so under protest, am I happy? Has he obeyed me? Has he understood the heart of the command to share with his sister? What's the point? Why am I commanding him to share? What do I want? I want him to love her. I want him to desire her happiness. I want him to to be willing to give something up for her good. It's a stupid little thing. It's a toy. I don't care about the toy. I care about his heart. God cares about your heart. So the second way to respond is to respond like that. And it's to take it as a relief. God commands us to be cheerful givers. God gives what he commands. And it's a relief. I actually want to be a cheerful, cheerfully obedient son. God's not a killjoy. He doesn't squash happy children. He creates them. God delights in cheerful givers. He loves cheerful givers because cheerful givers get it. They see who they are. They see their sin. They see their total, utter dependence on God. Everything I have is his. Everything I have was given to me. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. In fact, it was a blood-bought gift that I do not deserve because all I deserve at this very moment is hell. And God has been generous with me. He's been merciful to me. And it's my privilege. It's my privilege to show that, to share that, to overflow with the love that he's shown me so that I meet the needs of others. The final point we're going to draw out of this passage is the appeal to our desire to bring glory to God. It's all throughout the passage, and it's there implicitly. It's not explicit. It doesn't say, since you desire to glorify God, or you ought to desire to glorify God. It's just assumed. We see these statements that amount to, and God will be glorified in this way, and God will be glorified in that way. And the only way that can possibly make sense as an appeal is if you desire God to be glorified. Otherwise, it won't matter. So the first thing we need to come back to and assert is that the desire of every man's heart ought to be to glorify God, ought to bring glory to our Heavenly Father. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, the apostle commands us, saying, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. 
This is the fundamental ruling principle of the Christian's life. What's the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism? What's the chief end of man? What's man's chief purpose? Why did God make us? What's the point? And what's the answer? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If that's why God made us, then it should be our heart's controlling desire to bring him glory and to enjoy him forever. It shouldn't even need to be said. We should be able to assume it like the apostle does in this passage. We can't. We can't do that because the glory of God isn't even on some of your radars. You have no taste for his glory. You have no taste for his goodness. No delight in it. No pleasure in it. No desire for it. And you think you're okay. And you're not. You're not a Christian. That's the truth. You can fill your life with disciplines that are God-centered, but if at the end of the day your heart's desire is not to bring glory to Jesus Christ, then you simply do not belong to him. You have not been changed. But if you are a Christian, then beneath it all, beneath the temptations, beneath the powerful urges of indwelling sin, is a new nature, a heart born again, made alive, and the purifying influence of the Holy Spirit causing us to desire to bring God glory. So when you see these appeals, you should want to embrace them. They look like this. Look with me in verse 11. You'll be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So your generosity produces thanksgiving to God. The ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, which you should long to do, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Men are rising up and giving thanks to God. Men will rise up and give thanks to God. They will glorify God and praise him because of your generosity. That's the goal of, that's the whole point. That's the whole point of being generous. It's to bring glory to God. To show forth his character, right? By supplying the needs of our brothers and sisters as God has supplied us. And it's so that they'll give thanks and praise to the one to whom thanks and praise is due. Because of, this is verse 13, because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience. They will glorify God for your obedience. They'll look at you and they'll say, These guys are legit. They're authentic. They're real. What they do with their lives matches up with what they say with their mouths. And they will glorify God because of you. And their hearts will be drawn to you, it says. Verse 14, while they also by prayer on your behalf. So now this other church is praying for you. And yearning for you. Because of the surpassing grace of God in you. They see God's grace in you. They long for you. They pray for you. Your hearts are bound together. All of these things bring glory to God, which is why in verse 15, the apostle says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He himself, just thinking about it, just thinking about it, overflows with praise to God.
Now, is that the desire of your heart? That God would be glorified. Money is the perfect diagnostic tool. I've said it. How do you spend your money? What are your possessions to you? Where is your, what is your attitude toward them? Where is your treasure? Where is your heart? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is your time and your energy to you? What did God give you gifts for? Are they tools he's given you to bring glory to his name? Are they seeds that you're ready to scatter in order to produce a harvest of righteousness? Or have they displaced God and become your master? I fear that for some of us, our possessions are like the weight around our necks that are threatening to sink us down to hell. We're like the rich young ruler. They're too precious to us. They're too precious to you. You can't let go of them. At the very least, they're the idols that have kept our hearts in bondage to this world. They've kept us from living fully to God, from experiencing his blessing and his power overflowing richly to us and out from us to others. So the call this morning is to be set free, to see God as he is, to see him as a gracious and generous God, a God who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all and with him is prepared to give us all things. He's a God who's made promises. You reap what you sow. It's a frightening promise if you do not belong to him. And it's a hope-filled promise if you do. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither rust nor moth destroy nor thieves break in and steal. So lay up treasures in heaven and you will reap. God loves cheerful givers. He's a God who loves cheerful givers. He's a happy father who delights in happy sons and daughters. A generous spirit reflects the character of God and meets the needs of the saints. It creates thanksgiving and praise. It demonstrates your understanding of the gospel and it creates and restores a spirit of peace and unity in God's church. And so the call this morning is to be generous. With your money, with everything God's given you. Freely God has given to you out of the abundance of his grace and mercy. Freely give to others. Let's pray.